Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of the TMI Entrepreneurship Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rocker Priori, and we have our new co host, Andrew Nixon. So, we're finally on to season six, which is all about international dynamics. If you look at a lot of PhD programs, there's a lot of international students, even here in the US, from different countries and vice versa. So we thought it would be important to kind of talk about what that means for PhD students. So we have with us today, Ted Ladd. Ted Ladd is a professor of entrepreneurship at Holt International Business School. And Holt is cool because they have campuses across the world. So where you might have some of these U.S. schools that have a campus in a couple different cities, Holt has campuses in different countries. So we thought Ted would be a really good person to kind of kick off this episode and this season to talk a little bit more about why he chose Holt, what his career has been so far, and give us just some insights on what it means to be working somewhere that has such a preference for international dynamics. So we're really excited to have him on board and hear what he has to say today. But we always start with an icebreaker question. It's different every season and you're the first episode of the international season, so you don't get a hint as to what it is. But since uh, the season's all about international dynamics, your icebreaker question is, if you could only live in one place in the entire world for the rest of your life, where would you live? My family plays a version of this game where we say, okay, assume you're on the run from the law, you and, and you're in the witness protection program and you have to go to a city where you don't know anybody. That's tough, right? Because then you can, because if they recognize you and they say, oh, hey, Ashley, all of a sudden your cover's blown and then you're in big trouble. So for that, I think it would be Vancouver. Vancouver, I think, would be the place that are a big city. So you can mix in. I could probably have a job. You have to have a job. I can't be a professor, right? Because then I've blown my cover. But Palau would be my first choice, E-A-L-A-U, which is a small island, set of islands in the Pacific with great scuba diving, one main road, and okay internet. Vancouver, if I need to have a job and support myself, depends on if I'm on the run from the law. Um, And then there's always the question, what I just told you is totally irrelevant because it entirely depends on where my wife would like to go. And because I would rather be married to her than anything else in the world, I don't care where I am as long as she's with me, that I'll go wherever she wants. Good answer. Good answer. I love it. Can you give us, the listeners, uh, a little bit more insight on how you got to this point of your career? How'd you decide on this career? How did you get to where you are with Holt right now? Sure. Um, let me describe that quick, that path quickly, and then we describe Holt because they're just two separate things. So I had been doing startups for about 25 years in Silicon Valley. Um, I, so I grew up in Wyoming, went to school back east for undergrad, MBA, economics, PhD. Um, and then I said, I don't understand technology. This was in 1998 when I graduated my MBA. I said, I don't understand technology, but I'm pretty sure Philadelphia doesn't have any. So I migrated out west, not having any clue about the Silicon Valley ecosystem and found, it took me about two years, landed my dream job working for Palm, 
which was the handheld computers that started the smartphone revolution. And so every subsequent startup that I played in was smaller, got the devices got smaller and smaller and smaller, and the companies got smaller and smaller and smaller. And so the most recent one, this was well, maybe 10 years ago now, was um, a company that made a smartwatch. So we ended up getting Mercy acquired by Google, which was a fun story and it's a fun outcome, but it wasn't the outcome I wanted. And Google made it work and we couldn't. And I was very disappointed in that. And I was the only one who said, wait a minute, people, I don't understand what just went wrong. This did not turn out how we wanted it to. We wanted to be the owners of smartwatch software, not having to sell to Google. And so I started my PhD about three weeks later. And the topic of my PhD is how do you design and refine the business model for a multi-sided platform before you invest any money? Um, so that got me the PhD. I also got the PhD not only answer the, to answer the question that I had been struggling to answer, but also because I thought I needed the union card stamp to work at a business school. I wanted to teach. I'd been teaching on the side up in Seattle and I wanted to teach at, at great schools. I love the research. It is a blast. I look at every business now differently and I can provide to my students insights. So when I was getting my PhD, looking around for where I wanted to teach, I did not want to teach at a school with tenure. I study entrepreneurship. It's antithetical. Tenure is antithetical to what, who, who I had been and what I studied. Having a job for life is not entrepreneurial, and it would not bring out the best in me to continually strive to teach, to do research, to design new programs. So I intentionally looked for a good school that, was, that didn't have tenure. And Halt is one of the few in that list. So that's, the, that's what I loved about Halt. The other piece of Halt, the, sort of our defining value, we aren't just an international business school because we invite international students to campus. And by the way, the percentage of people who go to Halt, it's 95% non-American. So this is truly international, but that's not just what makes it international. We have campuses in San Francisco, Boston, New York, London, and Dubai. Students, it's a one-year master's program. Students do eight months on one of those campuses. And then for the rest of the three months, they can rotate to any other campus. I'm going to shift a little bit more of advice you might have for PhD students who want to have more of an international presence once they finish their PhD. So for Holt, since it is an international business school, you've talked a little bit about how many um, international students there are. What opportunities are there for faculty at a school like this to be able to move or travel internationally? If you're at the San Francisco campus and you want to move to one of the campuses in Europe, do you have those opportunities? PhD students that are graduating, is this something they should be considering if they want to be able to move somewhere else halfway through their career? So let me, let me take, there were multiple different questions there and the answer is yes and no. Um, yes, professors at Halt can move to different campuses. It depends on what they teach and the sort of the demand for it. Obviously it's expensive to send me to Dubai to teach a course. 
So they, I really have to develop my area of expertise that is popular with students who want to take this elective. I need to develop my own reputation as a professor um, separately so students will see my name and hopefully sign up for those courses so that Dubai will say, okay, we were going to offer this course to somebody else, but now we want you to come. So yes, there are opportunities for that. There's especially opportunities in the United States to go from San Francisco to Boston and New York. Um, so because it's much less expensive, no border crossings, like no passports, no visa issue. We also are making more of an effort at HALT to hire professors who resemble the students that we serve. So more people of international backgrounds, more people of color, more women. We also are hiring, we're emphasizing in our hiring people with a PhD or a terminal degree, DBA, because we want them to be doing research because it adds something to our classrooms that another school can't, doesn't have. Like we're, original research that I can introduce in my classroom before it's been published into a journal article is a differentiator for HALT in that international competition for students. That's all the good news. The bad news, Ashley, for what, you, for what you just said, we very rarely hire people just out of their PhD program because the typical professor at HALT has had 10 to 15 years of professional experience and they've had uh, a PhD and they've been teaching in a lot of different places because we want relevance in teaching, mastery in teaching, and industry mastery and research mastery. So our expectations are actually pretty high. And all of this without offering tenure, that's not a carrot that we're gonna offer. So it means that we have to have other perks like international travel, like um, a classroom that is full of international students that is the world right in front of you that you get to impact. My advice for young PhD students is twofold. The first, ensure that the research that you're doing um, is framed in a way that matches what business schools are hiring. Quick, quick example for this. Um, when I was doing my PhD, the topic had a little bit of entrepreneurial self-efficacy and a little bit of does the lean startup method work? So I was combining these two to go from uh, attitude to action to output. And, and so I was presenting this to, the, my, to my committee and they said, wow, you could take this in two different ways. You could frame it in two different ways. And the way you're framing it right now is as a, a problem of entrepreneurial psychology. How many entrepreneurial psychologists do business schools hire every year? Not that many. They said the other way you could frame it as, as entrepreneurial strategy. How many strategy professors do business schools hire every year? A lot. So as you're doing your research, you don't have to change the research question, change the frame that it, so that it's aiming towards the job that is the most likely to get you employed by university. The second piece of advice, even if you are a teaching assistant at a university, you need course evaluations with your name on them for how having designed a course and delivered a course start to finish. This may mean that PhD students need to carve out some time they don't have and go teach a course at a community college. So when you hit the job market, you have teaching evaluations that are entirely yours. 
so that you can show potential employers you are ready to go. I had some peers from my own PhD program who were 50 years old when they graduated their PhD. It was a mid-career PhD program. 50 years old, huge professional experience, great research, and no teaching eval. So they really struggled to get into a teaching position at a big university because they had that one gap. So for PhD students, fill that gap. Let me, ask, let me add on one other piece of advice for typically for non-PhD students, like you have to have either PhD, you have to have done some teaching. There are lots of summer programs around the world where they only teach in the summer. And frequently the full-time faculty at those universities don't want to teach. So I taught for three summers at the University of Copenhagen. Um, just because they were looking for somebody who could teach entrepreneurial strategy. And I said, wouldn't it be interesting? I dragged my wife over there the first summer. She even came late and said, oh, but summer's in Jackson Hole. Why do I want to leave this? She came over anyway. She loved it. The second summer, we went back and we, um, we toured all through Northern Europe, like tiny little villages in Denmark. And then I was sort of ready to be done. What's the next adventure? And my wife said, no, no, no. You are going to go back and teach at the university at, at Copenhagen Business School because I want to eat my way through Copenhagen. So we spent all the proceeds on fancy restaurants in Denmark. Um, but that's those that's a great opportunity for all types of faculty. You got to be a good teacher, but you don't necessarily have to be a senior teacher to find these interesting summer options that will get you around the world. It's great advice. I love it. And it goes back to your point of uh, as long as your wife is happy with where you are, then it's all good. So knowing what you know now, what is one thing you wish you had known when you first started your doctoral program? My doctoral program immersed me in lots of theories and lots of methods. I loved it. It was, it was at Case Western Reserve. And this is, it was an executive doctoral program, um, which means that I did 38 trips to Cleveland for 38 weekends, and then I would come back. My wife said, you can go get a PhD if you want, but you gotta live here. Okay, no problem. Um, and they had, so we had qual, we had quant, we had super hard quant, like structural equation modeling, where we had to dive deep into lots of mediation and moderation and other layers and um, uh, uh, permutations of that. Like we were deep in it. What I wish I had known then is just because it is elegant and written down on paper does not mean it's a theory that works. So for example, every now and then, those of us, so I started my PhD when I was 42, I think I was one of the youngest in my cohort. And every now and then these executive doctoral students would have meetings, we'd have meetings, joint get togethers, brown bag lunch, if you will, with the full-time young PhD students who had just come from their bachelor's into their doctoral program. And when they presented to us, they were doing mathematical backflips that I was just could just marvel at. I could never do that. Like their math was spectacular. But they were testing theories that had been promoted in top journals that I knew just didn't work. They, they, they just didn't work. So my advice to PhD students is even if you find a theory that is intellectually interesting to you 
and has lots of interesting citations and even have some gaps that you are able to fill, like worthwhile gaps for things we don't know. My first suggestion is get out of academia, find a veteran practitioner and ask them what they think of that theory. And if they say, we have known for 50 years that that theory doesn't work, even if it's elegant and will make a good PhD dissertation, do something else. Shoot for relevance for what you produce. Have that be the second most important part of your ambition. The first is to graduate, right? get, get through it, survive the pain, graduate. But the second is have something that you can show that will help practitioners when you get out. And the only way you're gonna know that is to vet the idea with existing practitioners in the field before you get too far down the path of your literature reviews, your research assistants, picking your dissertation committee members or having them pick you. So get to that early. We have a DBA program at HALT that I started a couple of years ago and we ask them in their application essay to describe the problem that they see in the world and then have a few, few hypotheses for my, what might be going on. But we're intentionally saying to them, we want you to start with the problem that businesses face right now as a way to force relevance into their research. Yes, I would consider that a ninth inning home run, Ted. So thank you for, for bringing it home. No, I, I love it. Uh, that, was, that was a pleasure to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you so much, Ted, for taking your time to do this. I think there's so many good tidbits in here that are going to be really, really helpful for students. Being a, T being a PhD student is hard because we're, maybe we're going to enter a recession. Maybe schools won't be hiring as much. Sometimes the research is incredibly lonely. Sometimes the numbers work. Sometimes they don't. But even if they work, you sort of do a cheer in an empty library or an empty office and your cheer is you're only sharing that between you and SPSS. So what the two of you are doing with this podcast is you are connecting people with shared ambitions, shared problems, so that nobody as a PhD student has to be alone. They may feel alone, but they can listen to you and then they can feel and recognize that they're part of this community of people who are aspiring to strive to make the business education better. So to the two of you, this is a Herculean effort that you are doing right now. It takes a lot of time, a lot of um, post, a lot of vulnerability for you to be asking questions, um, probably a lot of patience for you to hear a lot of nonsensical answers. Thank you for having an impact on our industry and making it better. I appreciate that. I think there's definitely a lack of uh, podcasts for, first of all, academics, and especially doctoral students. And then if you go management, well, you know, may all may all future doctoral students do practical, relevant research that matters to businesses. And we'll talk about it on here. And that's what we're here for at TMI. So we want to thank Ted for being here today and taking the time to give us all this great advice. This is a great way to kick off the international dynamics season and to kind of get more information about what opportunities are out there 
for us as PhD students, if we do want to have more of an international career following our PhD studies. So thank you, Ted, for your great advice and insights. And we are excited to see what our other guests from this season have to say about international dynamics as well. We also want to thank all of you for listening. If you have any suggestions or questions for future episodes, please feel free to reach out to our email address, tmientpod at gmail.com. And Andrew, Josh, and I look forward to reading your suggestions and hearing from you. And until next time.